The following sermon by our guest speaker is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Again, it's a joy to be here. I want to encourage your hearts today uh, from the Word of God to hopefully strengthen your soul. One of the most amazing passages in Acts to me is when Luke is talking about Paul's first missionary journey, and he finds himself in Derby. So he's about, he's really finished making the, the round in his, in his travels. He ends up in Derby, and Acts 14.21 says, And after they had preached the gospel to that city, made many disciples, they returned. And what Paul does is he starts retracing his steps. And he goes back to all of the cities that he had just visited weeks and months prior, in which he's made disciples, planted churches. And you say, well, why would he do that? And we especially ask, why would he do that? Because in every one of those cities, he met what? Persecution and some pretty serious, I mean, his life was at risk in every one of these locations. In one location, they drug him out of the city, stoned him, and left him for dead. And here Paul says, now, I want to go back to that city. Wow. And I want to go back to those other cities. And it says, here's why. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples. These are the the new believers that, that he left in those cities and encouraging them to continue in the faith, encouraging them to be following and trusting in our great God that we sang about earlier. And then Luke summarizes all that Paul says. I don't know about you, but I would be curious. Okay, here's the Apostle Paul. He's retracing his steps, all these new believers, and he wants to go back, risking his life to strengthen them and to teach them God's Word. wonder what he, what he told them. Here's, here's how Luke just summarizes it. And you know, the New American Standard here, these are, this is a quotation. So Luke is saying all that Paul said, which he said much more than this, but he summarizes it and he puts it this way. Here's what Paul taught. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. End of quote. I mean, that's the summary of Paul's encouragement to these new churches. Listen, folks, there's, there's tribulations coming. It's the way it works. You must go through this to enter the kingdom of God. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, put it this way, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. You shouldn't be shocked or surprised about this because this is pretty normal. This is not strange. And then he says a few verses later, Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God, another interesting phrase there is that our suffering is according to God's plan, that they shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I love that is that so when we're experiencing those difficulties and trials and setbacks in our life, what are we to do? We're to trust God who has the plan. 
And it is always good and always for our best. And so I'm sure Paul, as he went back and taught those new Christians, they, they had to learn the reality that following Christ doesn't mean that everything's going to go wonderful in our life. You know, God does love us and has a wonderful plan for us, but sometimes that is pretty misleading. And then Paul, no doubt, went further and said, not only are these things going to happen to you, but guess what? They are actually planned by God with meaningful purpose in your life. And there are several ways that the Bible keeps coming back and back at this theme. It's going to be trials, going to be tribulation, and we trust God. Number one, one way the Bible does this is through direct statements. You know, we all know Romans 8.28, right? I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than this. Uh, Talk about direct statements, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Another way the Bible does this with imperatives, with commands, you know, to trust God. I, I grew up in the era in the church where you, everybody had a life verse, you know, especially all the teenagers. If you didn't have a life verse, you know, you had problems. And so I had to have a life verse, and I picked Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's been a great verse, you know, verses. Uh, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. But there's another way the Bible comes at this theme, and that is through narratives, through incredible stories of God's faithfulness in the midst of suffering. In other words, they show us, here's the kind of thing God does in your life. See it in this life. See it in this biblical character. And the Old Testament book of Ruth is one of those stories that does that for us. It's really designed to instill a rock-solid confidence in our God, particularly when we find ourselves under difficult circumstances. We're in the dark, and we have no idea what's going on. So let's take your Bibles, and I want you to turn to this book. We're going to quickly summarize it this morning, and how I want to approach this is look at the introduction and the conclusion. I'll just say a few words about the middle, but you really get the theme of the book and, and the message of it by, by noticing how the narrator introduces it, and then we'll jump to the conclusion. I think this book speaks primarily, there's several great reasons that, that this book is in our Bibles today, but one of the primary reasons and purposes of the book is it speaks of the hidden hand of God's providence. And it's persuading us to trust confidently in our God. Because Ruth shows us that there is always purpose at work. There's always this divine design. John Piper said of the book of Ruth that it asks the question, can I trust and love God who has dealt me this painful hand in life. Can I trust God through this? That's the question that Ruth intends to answer. And hopefully we can bring all the experiences of our life, including all the calamities, 
under the sway of God's providence and trust that God's purposes are good. Now, the book has several unique things. It does this in unique ways. The life of faith and trust that's portrayed in Ruth, guess what? It's it's very unspectacular, frankly. None of the three main characters, uh, Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi, uh, they did not have a chance of ever making it into Hebrews 11. You know, that's the faith hall of fame. There's, there's not really any hard-to-believe acts of faith or trust in the book. If you know Hebrews 11, you can look at Ruth and say there's no conquered kingdoms, there's no shutting the mouths of lions, there's no you know, quenching the power of fire, there's no escaping the edge of the sword, no putting foreign armies to flight, there's no resurrections from the dead. And what you do see in Ruth, which is why I love this book, is you see God at work in everyday life with ordinary people accomplishing his spectacular will behind the scenes. And really, there's not even uh, this huge faith on the part of the main characters. They're all good and decent and faithful people, but this book is more about the faithfulness of God in their lives. It's about the providence of God more than the deeds of the main character. Really, the main character of the book is God. And another unique thing about Ruth is you you don't get the punchline of the book until you come to the very end, and then even much of the significance of the book was not even known to the three main characters. It comes years and years later. So let's take a moment, okay, and we're going to look at the introduction, and then we'll see the conclusion. The introduction to Ruth is very, very significant. And I think a lot of people overlook this. The first five verses are really key to the book because they carefully uh, set the stage for all that's going to come in the book. The first thing that the narrator does for us is he draws us into the tragic story of this woman by the name of Naomi. And then Beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1, through the very end of the book, he shows you, here's God's plan. Here's why all that happened in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. How God providentially uh, turned the, really the horror of Naomi's life uh, into some incredible blessing, not only for Naomi, but for all of Israel, and not only for Naomi and Israel, but for the whole world, as we'll see in conclusion. So the blessing here goes from individual to national to global, and it's all meant to be seen against the backdrop of what happens in verses 1 through 5. Let me read it for us. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons, They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. 
The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Milan and Kilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Here's, here's more than ten years of history that's just crammed into these five short verses. And the author is doing this with a particular strategy in mind. He, he wants you to see the tragedy of Naomi's life, the desperate state of her condition. The, the rest of Ruth is really dominated by dialogue, but here in these first five verses, all you get are these brief statements, all of which are negative, describing Naomi's situation. And here's the challenge for us this morning. I just, we're going to fly through these five verses, but here's the challenge. Don't think ahead, okay? What, what you're supposed to do, I think, in the telling of this story is put yourself in Naomi's place so that when you get to verse 6, you're, you feel her pain and, and you're confused along with her. And, and you have compassion for Naomi and you have questions for God. Why? Why, why would all of this happen to this woman? Here's seven providential setbacks. Number one, the spiritual corruption of the time. He starts out and it says, in the days when the judges governed. And that's when Naomi lived. And this is in the pre-monarch period of Israel's history. It's between the death of Joshua and the beginning of Saul, Israel's first king. It's a terrible time in Israel's history. You go back to the last verse. You don't even have to turn a page in your Bible. In verse 25 of chapter 21 of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone, what? You know the, you know the line. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And if we had time to go back, chapter 2, there's, there's these cycles of evil that took place these gloomy patterns and the spiritual, this is a spiritual climate, first of all, providentially, that Naomi lived in. People would sin by doing evil on the side of the Lord. God would judge them, typically by sending in enemies. People would cry out to God for help, and then God would mercifully raise up a, a judge or, or a governor or a leader to rescue his people, and then once they are rescued, what do they do? They go right back into sinful patterns, often worse than the previous. And so this is, this is the time in history, and folks, obviously it's not, not good news. You ever wish you were born in a different era? You know, I, um, I have four girls, and uh, we grew up with five women in the family, and back several years ago, you know, the favorite show in our house was Little House on the Prairie. And uh, you'd watch that. And every once in a while, my wife would say, I think somewhat naively, because it was rough back in those days. But you can understand, it was so simple in those days. Wouldn't it be fun to live in, in that? It's a little idyllic, I know. But, but here's Naomi. Just picture this. It's tough. I mean, she's, she is living in the spiritual 
corruption of the day. And by the way, this is more than just a date stamp on the book of Ruth. This is more than just telling you, uh, oh, this is when uh, Ruth and Naomi lived. This is a theological backdrop of how God's sovereignty is at work even in the worst of situations, in the worst of times. And I know... You know, many of us think, oh my goodness, what's going to happen you know, with our country? This is so bad. It's getting bad. Yes, it is. But guess what? God's still at work. And, and what this book tells us, there's still men like Boaz, obedient and faithful to the Lord. People are still coming to Christ, like Ruth, who was brought into the family of God by faith. And, and God is still caring for his people. God is still aware of what's going on like he was with Naomi. So this is a horrible spiritual climate in Israel. When Naomi, Elimelech, they met, they fell in love, they got married, and they had two sons. Setback number two, economic collapse. There, that there was a famine in the land. Famines were not that un uncommon in those days. Um, probably covered the entire land of Israel. Abraham, there was a famine. He left, remember? He left Israel because of it. Uh, Isaac was another famine. He left Israel because of it. Jacob, there was a severe famine. We know the story of Jacob. He left Israel, went down to Egypt, and they spent 400 years in Egyptian bondage. And so here's his family in Israel now, Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons are caught up in this horrible situation, an agrarian society, uh, a famine, there was no crops, there's no food, there's no money. And so they move to Moab, which brings us the providential setback number three, a move to Moab. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. And you know the story, we've read this. Bethlehem ironically means house of bread, but in this particular time, because of the famine, there was no bread. Bethlehem is five miles south of Jerusalem, and it's still on a higher elevation. And you could actually look across the Jordan Valley and the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth, and see the mountains of Moab. So, you know, they were probably thinking, you know, because of the weather patterns, there's rain over there in Moab, there's crops, there's food, and Elimelech makes the decision to move his family. And this was not a, you know, not the global village like we have today. Uh, this would have been a move that meant a different culture, different religion, different language, very difficult thing. Plus, what do we know about Moab? If you were to look at the five previous historical references in the Bible prior to Ruth on Moab, all of them are disastrous. And that's where they move. Not a, by the way, there's no comment about the moral choices that are made here. The narrator just gives you the facts. I want you to know, here's, here's what happened. And, and here's what Naomi faced. Setback number four, verse three, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons. Here, here's the death of a husband. So Elimelech, he runs from famine in Israel, and he soon meets up death in Moab. It's nothing worse than being a widow in a foreign country. 
And it's interesting now that everything shifts its focus to Naomi. In fact, I know this is, the book is called Ruth, but it's really a story of Naomi. Every, every chapter, the camera focuses on her in some unusual ways, as we'll see in, in the conclusion. But she's a widow, a foreign widow in a strange land with no husband to, carry, to care for her. Number five. The sons marry pagan wives. They took for themselves, verse 4, Moabite women as wives. The name of the one is Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. Milan married Ruth. We know that from chapter 4. And so Kilion married Orpah. Not really a good idea. In fact, the Hebrew took for themselves. It's not the normal expression or the common expression to take a wife. It's a more unusual expression. It's used only nine times in the, in the Old Testament. And, and every time there's a negative connotation to it, sometimes it's, there's a violently carried off a woman connotation to it. It's not suggesting that there was anything violent or terribly inappropriate here. But I think the narrator chooses his words with negative connotations for a purpose. These, these were women that worshipped false gods. This was prohibited. It's not a good thing. And what's usually a happy occasion for Naomi had to have some element of pain. You, you can't be totally happy mother of the groom when your sons marry wives who worship false gods and doing so in disobedience to the Lord. Number six, they lived there about 10 years. The 10 years is probably 10 years after they married, which means that the total sojourn could have been just over 10 years, 10 years plus. And that's significant because it's clear in the text that there are no children from either marriage. And what that means for Naomi is that there's absolutely no grandchildren Another painful event. And then the worst of all, number seven, verse five, then Milan and Kilion also died. Literally, it says, and even her two children die. As if to say, can you believe what happens next? And how this is just piling on? Said in class on Thursday and Rick was teaching Job and just reminded again of what happened to Job and how that messenger came in and, and Rick was reminding us that even before that messenger, the first one finished speaking, while he was still speaking, a second messenger came in and then a third and then a fourth and they were all delivering terrible news to Job. And the amazing thing is it says that Job did not sin in all of this, but he actually worshipped God. He, he was trusting in God. And here's Naomi. Her grief is even emphasized by using the word children and not the word for sons. The word for sons was used up in verses 1, 2, and 3, and then again in 11 and 12. But here in verse 5, when he's talking about their death, it says she lost her children, her babies. Both of them, all of them. And really, not only that these were her sons, but they were also her only hope 
for support in life. Did her two sons die at the same time? We don't know. But Naomi probably had three funerals in Moab. Her husband and both sons. And again, there's, is this God's judgment for a marriage? We don't know. We don't know. And it's not, frankly, because we're not told, it's not that significant to the story. And we're left to stand at the end of verse 5 along with Naomi, not knowing why anything happened the way it did. No explanation whatsoever. And I think it's more likely that we're not meant to know the reasons why. We're not told on purpose because like Naomi, uh, we so frequently don't know the reasons, right? Why? What's going on here, Lord? We don't understand it. There's little explanation. So here's how the book opens with one painful event after another, and in five short verses, a woman's life has been decimated. Do you get the idea that the the narrator here wants us to feel Naomi's pain, the way he's told this story by piling up all these negative descriptions of her ten years in Moab? It's almost painful to watch and to hear and to think about and to imagine Naomi standing at her third graveside. Look, look at verse 19 just to see how difficult this was for Naomi. You know the story as she makes her way back to Bethlehem. And she's with Ruth. And verse 19 says, So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? I mean, the, the, the idea here is they're all kind of whispering. There's this hum around Bethlehem. Naomi's back. And, and they're all saying, can, that, can this possibly be Naomi? They're shocked. Probably because she's arriving without her family, maybe learned that they all died. And, and also arriving with a foreign Moabitess woman at her side. But also probably even her appearance, even her demeanor was a shock. It's been a rough 10 years. Naomi interrupts their talk in verse 20, and she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi's painting a word picture here for her lady friends. Because Naomi means pleasant or delightful. And Mara means unpleasant or bitter. And so she's saying, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter and unpleasant. Why? I want to I stick up for Naomi at this point. Because I, so many people are so hard on Naomi, and I, I'm not so sure that it's saying that she is bitter. As much as it is saying her life and her circumstance is, has been bitter. This is not emphasizing Naomi's heart of bitterness, but it's, it's the bitter circumstances of her life because, because God has allowed this to happen. In fact, she actually has pretty good theology here. She's saying God is in control, God is sovereign, God has brought all of this on me, 
And so she's not saying, I am bitter, but my life has been marked by bitter experiences. My pathway has been a bitter one. It has not been pleasant. Don't even call me, Naomi. The text actually explains why she said that. Verse 24, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. We went out, I went out full, but came back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So the author obviously wants you to understand what's happened here. Now, the rest of the book. What a great story this is. The rest of the book, you know what we learned? We learned that God was actually on Naomi's side all along. Even though there were painful, bitter experiences in life, He has an unbelievable plan for Naomi, for Ruth, for Boaz, for Israel, and for us. That all comes out of that experience there in Moab. Listen, if there, if there was no Moab, there would be no Ruth. If there was no Ruth, there would be no marriage to Boaz. If there was no marriage to Boaz, there would not be, as we'll see in the conclusion, little baby Obed. And if there was no Obed, there would be no, tell me, class. Yeah, there would be two things. No King David, and there would be no son of David, because he is, he is in the line of the Messiah. And God has been preserving all of this and working out His plan, and it is all unbelievably good. And you know what it tells us? We never have enough information to, to correctly assess what we're going through. We simply do not know. So oftentimes, we're, we are in the dark in fact, even, even further, step further, so often it seems like God is opposing us. That, that He is not on our side. He is not faithful. He's not caring for us. In chapter 1 and verse 13, Naomi tells her daughter-in-laws, it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. He, he's not for me. It seems like he's against me here. I love Derek Thomas's comment, his little book on the providence of God. He, he talks about Genesis 42, 36. And he says, there are few more poignant words in the Bible than the despair-laden response of Jacob to the supposed news that his son Simeon was taken captive in Egypt. Because in Genesis 42, 36, Jacob cries out, all this has come against me. Similar to what Naomi's saying here in Ruth chapter 1. Why is that? Because Jacob thought his favorite son Joseph was dead. He wasn't. Jacob thought his next favorite son Simeon was good as dead. He wasn't. Jacob thought that there was that any hope of famine relief from Egypt was doomed. It wasn't. I mean, granted, it all looked that way, and all that Jacob could see and hear and rationalize certainly looked like all is lost, no hope, all this has come against me. It was all perfectly reasonable, 
but all perfectly wrong. Why is that? Because the hidden hand of God was at work. And you and I, we never fully understand this. Ruth, this book is God's way of saying, here's the kind of thing I do in the lives of my people behind the scenes. And here's precisely why you can trust me. Even though you may not fully, completely understand all that I'm doing. There is a, you're going to hear all about John Newton here in a few weeks. And I've heard my friend Todd Murray do this concert before, and it is, it is wonderful and amazing, and I encourage you all to come. A friend of John Newton's was William Cooper. William Cooper had a very difficult life. He wrote many hymns. There is a fountain filled with blood and several others. But probably his most famous is a, is a poem that almost every commentary on Ruth and every sermon I've ever heard on Ruth quotes this poem. It must be some unwritten law, so we don't want to break it today. So I'm going to, I'm going to quote this poem by William Cooper, and you'll recognize it. He says this, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You know what that verse is saying? It's it's unfathomable. It's like a deep mine of skill and compassion and goodness that you and I will never fully understand. And so here's his admonition, his encouragement to us. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. The frowning providence is the reality of what Naomi went through. The smiling face is all all that follows. And you know the story. What happens What happens in the rest of chapter 1? They're going back to Bethlehem. What is Ruth? This is Ruth's conversion. And and Ruth has this wonderful uh, commitment to follow Naomi. And they go back to Bethlehem. And as difficult as it is, uh, the narrator ends the chapter by saying, and they happen to arrive right at the beginning of barley harvest. Imagine that. And then you go look in chapter 2, and Ruth wants to go out to the field and there was this like welfare system of going to the corner of the grain fields and just picking the grain that was left over and, and taking that home. And I love verse, verse 3. It says, She departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Literally, this says, for her chance chanced upon. And the writer's a little sarcastic humor hearing it here, and he's basically saying, um, this was God. This was God at work. And you see chapter 3, how God even uses Naomi's risky plan, you know, to propose to Boaz on the, 
on the threshing floor, but Ruth goes and does as she, Naomi tells her to. Chapter 4, you come and you see how God is, it easily overrules all the obstacles, all of the, um, here the un, unforeseen obstacle of this other near kinsman that is there. And it's all incredibly amazing. But three quick things in the, inter- in the conclusion. There's a grandson. There's a son that's born. Chapter 4 and verse 13. You, you should contrast this. Now, you look at the, the ladies' friends in Bethlehem. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went in and to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. She gave birth to a son. Then, then the women said to Naomi, those are the same ladies in Bethlehem. But this time they're saying, Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. May, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For you're a daughter-in-law who we, we see now who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Boaz comes as a kinsman redeemer. Here, this, this redeemer is actually talking about the baby, Obed is that he is also a redeemer for Ruth and, and, so, and for Naomi as well. And here's the amazing blessing. God had this planned all along. And then you come to this genealogy and you're thinking, what a great way to, end, to ruin a really good story. You know, it just ends with this genealogy. What, what's up with that? Verses 18 to 22 is just all of these names and, and all of these, these generations. But you know what it was showing? It ends with who? What's the last name on the list? David. This, this is, God was preserving and planning this all along. And, and it's interesting when you think through some of the names of these people. Uh, one guy here was, is found in, in Exodus 6 in Egyptian slavery. Another one is, is his time in life was the wandering in the wilderness. Another one was the time of the judges. But Del Ralph Davis in his wonderful book on preaching Old Testament narrative just points out that God is, is preserving His people even in the midst of difficult times. This gives us all hope, doesn't it? God's at work. Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor in Geneva, he once told the king of France, the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. You just can't, you can't kill it. You can't destroy it. You know why? Because God has a plan that he is working on. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill. That's what the Lord is doing. We live in the human perspective. That's it. That's all we know. Uh, We don't see the divine perspective. We see the human side. While we know the presence of God in our lives, the purposes of God are often hidden, aren't they? And so, you know what we're called to do? Trust. Because God is doing so much. So much. Sinclair Ferguson said about Ruth, I love this, God is ultimately aware of us and He's deeply concerned for our welfare, but His providential purposes, which include me, do not center on me. 
as though what he's doing in me could be isolated from everything else he's doing. No, God's purposes crisscross, they zigzag, they cross-fertilize one believer's life with that of an unbeliever, or a believer's experience with another believer. He is always simultaneously, contemporaneously doing several things in several lives. And Ruth comes along and says, that's, that's how it works. I received a Facebook message, and I, I'm not really, I'm on Facebook, but I don't, I've never posted anything. I just, you know, stalk people uh, <laughs> that I know and want to find out more about them. But I got this email out of, the, out of the blue from a high school classmate. I graduated in 1970. Okay, so this is like, what, 43 years ago. And I've never spoken to this friend or acquaintance and uh, never heard from him. But I get this, you know, because of Facebook, he finds me on there and, and he writes me a letter. Bob, uh, I, I want you to know that, I don't know if I ever told you this, but when we were in high school together, uh, you, you witnessed to me and you invited me to a meeting at a church. And I heard the gospel at that meeting. And, and I, I became a believer and, and that was the initial prompting of God in my life when, when I heard that. And, and, you know, and, I, and I saw your name here, and I thought, you know, I don't know if he even knows about that. I don't know if I ever told him about that. And he just, he just wrote me to, to say, here, here's what happened in my life. And, I, and now I'm a Christian counselor, and I live in Columbus, Ohio. And here's, here's our family, and, and we love and serve Christ. And you know what I think heaven's going to be like? I think the Lord's going to come over and say, now let me, let me connect some dots for you. Let me show you. You know, you know that trial you're going through? And here's, you didn't know all that I was doing. I was doing so many things and accomplishing so many good things through you in that time. Like he did with Naomi. So here's the question from the book of Ruth. Can, can I trust and love God when He has dealt a painful hand in life? You see, there was a grandson. There was a king. But we turn to the New Testament. And I'm just going to read this and we'll close in prayer. Matthew chapter 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of of David, the son of Abraham. And it starts with Abraham, and it, and it goes all the way down, and look at verse 16, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And you have all this whole line there. Now look at verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Guess what? There's our little story tucked right there in the middle of the messianic line. God was at work in their life. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Let's pray together. 
Father, we're grateful for this wonderful narrative that you provided for us. It tells us so much about your compassion, even that you would reach outside of Israel and bring Ruth to a saving redemption. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see your sovereign hand in all that comes our way. And most importantly, that we would respond by trust, by worship as Job, and by trusting you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Wow. Well, can we thank Bob together for an exposition? Can we thank Bob together for the exposition? Thank you. <laughs> um, listen. I, I, that was exceptional work in that book. I'm, I'm only a little frustrated. I feel like we should have spent a whole weekend going through the book of Ruth. There's so many things. So maybe you can come back and teach the book of Ruth. Can we plan like this, Bob, if we do that? It's good. Um, and we'll, we'll give you multiple sessions. God is doing 10,000 things at one time. Isn't that an incredible thought? That it's not just, we're just a piece of his greater puzzle and not the whole puzzle itself. And when you see what, what's going on, I was reminded when you were talking about that, that Job didn't know what was going on in heaven. Abraham didn't know God was testing him. Ruth doesn't know that, <laughs> Ruth doesn't know that the messianic line of the Jewish Messiah was going to come through this Moabite woman. Incredible. how, And I can't wait for that moment when he connects the dots and shows us how all that worked together in heaven. What an amazing, amazing story. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. Bob, thank you for coming. Thank you for sharing with us. He actually was coming just to spend some time with the seminary students and with us. And I said, you're not going to be here and not preach. So we absconded with him. He and his wife will be leaving uh, just in a, in a few minutes to take off. But you're welcome to greet him uh, before he leaves. Father, give us what this book calls us to have. Perspective that's yours and from your throne and not just ours, and our limited understanding. Give each of us, Lord, that amazing awareness that whatever circumstance or trial we are in now, you are doing far more in and with and through and by than we could ever imagine, and to trust. Before I close, let me just encourage you, the room is going to be open to my right if Anything that Bob has said, anything in this text has prompted your heart to think more deeply about your soul, some way we can pray for you, please make your way over. Ben's going to be over there, and we'll be glad to serve you in any way we can. Lord, give us good discussions at lunch about this truth and these truths and the wonder of your providential work that's way more intricate than we can imagine. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.